have Q&A and P&A. P&A, pizza and answers, and um, so if I ever get stumped before I give my final answer, uh, Dr. Bartlett is my lifeline, and I get unlimited lifelines uh, to call on Dr. Bartlett Bartlett and and, uh, let him help me out with the answers. So, uh, you know, if you have your Bible with you, be turning to the book of Genesis chapter 5, and there was a brilliant German alchemist and uh, living in the early, 18, uh, early 1500s, and he started to delve into witchcraft, and eventually he made a pact with the devil himself, and, and for 24 years he'd have everything that he wanted, but at the end the devil would own his soul, and that story was popularized in Germany, and uh, Johann uh, Goethe's uh, tragic play in two parts called Faust, and the devil kept his promise, and For 24 years, Faust enjoyed fame and knowledge and the satisfaction of every pleasure, but the years were old quickly, and as as Faust was gripped with terrible foreboding, uh, the, the end began to draw near, and that drama attracted an artist who committed it to canvas in this way in 1831, Frederick uh, Wretch depicted the, the, a chess game between Faust and the devil, and he entitled it The Game of Life. And it was a solemn reminder of all who saw it of the sinister power of evil, and it reiterated the, the sober lesson that you can't play with the devil and win. So in Wretch's painting, the devil kind of gloats across the chess table at the doomed Faust, and his face is frozen in fear, and Faust only has his king. And, and queen and a bishop and rook and two weak pawns and the devil has this smirk on his face as if he's just waiting to say checkmate. Well, the American chess champion Paul Morphy joined a dinner party at a, a home in Richmond, uh, Virginia where a copy of that painting was hanging on the wall and he was sitting there eating and after studying it for a while, a silence was suddenly broken by a cry that said, it's a lie. And everybody uh, turned to Morphe and Terran. They said, what? Well, what's the matter? He said, the game is not over because the king has another move. And that chess master saw what everybody else missed. And Faust still had his king. And the king was primed for victory out of seeming disaster because the king had another move. And I don't see why you're not getting this. Because in the last session, we talked about... Now, one idea arising from dispensationalism is there are two trinities in conflict. That conflict is a contest for souls. But since you're not yet feeling Faust and I like I need you to, can I give you an experiential exegesis of that conflict for souls? Because we believe and teach biblical authority is found in a king, King James Bible. So let me explore your experience with an explanation of how the devil is in a duel for souls and you will lose unless you let the king make his next move. So first off, notice if you will, this is number one, all of us start off with our soul sold to the devil. Everyone who is born is is not born in the image and likeness of God, but if you'll look here in Genesis 5 with me at verse 3, it says Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and Adam's image is fallen and Adam's likeness is sinful 
And the sin nature that we have is inherited from our ancestor Adam. So all of us start off with our soul in the wrong place, under the wrong ownership and the wrong family. But second, on the other hand, this is number two. It's a lie to say that we have to stay as we started. Because King Jesus wants to give you another move. That means it's also a lie to say that only the elect can be saved. Because if the Calvinistic covenant reformed idea is true then Jesus is out of moves for some people. So they're unable to move because they're not, their will is not free. So understand what lies behind this conflict. We are all born in sin, but it's a lie to say we have to stay that way. King Jesus is speaking through my King James Bible, and God is willing to give you another move. And then just like Faust, this is number three. What really dooms you is not your original deals with the devil. It's your despair and disbelief of the king's other move. And the whole idea behind dispensationalism is the king always has another move. So it is, it is despair due to disbelief and distrust of dispensationalism that dooms you. Now my intention today is not to focus on Faust but on faith and not to concentrate on chess but on Christ because rightly dividing your Bible shows you that king, the king of kings always has another move. That is why in describing the topic of this year's Certainty Conference, Pastor Bartell said if you don't have a dispensational view of scriptures, it's impossible for you to believe every word in the Bible as it is written without changing it, adding to it, subtracting it, or twisting it. And, you know, that is why so many cult groups and mainline Christians damn their souls to hell. The conflict is lost before it ever begins. They think they have no move other than the mass. No move other than the Ten Commandments or keeping the Sermon on the Mount or being baptized or doing temple work or worshiping on Saturday. So here's our thesis for today's study. People are condemned to false gospels when they do not rightly divide their Bible. If you do not have sound doctrine, you do not have a sure salvation. So we ended the last session showing you how this conflict for souls spans eternity in times and seasons, and that the purpose of time, sitting in between the two eternities, eternity past and eternity future, is to provide a period of testing. So that within time, there is an unfolding of seven dispensations. Now, before I get to talking about that, I do want to say a word about my assumptions. Why? Because if we don't share the same assumptions, then we're not going to come to the same conclusions, even if we're looking at the same evidence. Savvy? Okay, so let me talk for a minute about biblical authority and a faith-based view of Scripture. Turn to Proverbs chapter 22. What do I mean by those two phrases? We want to help and encourage one another toward advancing missions and leadership training among other churches like us because of our common idea of the meaning of biblical authority and having a view of the Bible that gives a faith response to God's truth instead of approaching it skeptically. And so, so the key verse for this conference, for the certainty conferences, has been Proverbs 22. Beginning verse 20, have not I written unto thee? Now, this is a rhetorical question. So the intended answer is, yes, you have. God, you have written unto us excellent things in counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty. Let the whole church say certainty. certainty. 
Now apologize that person in front of you that you just spit some egg on the back of their head. Uh, certainty of the words of truth that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Now, if you don't use the King James Bible, you don't know your head from a hole in the ground right now. Why? Because, because let me show you, and I've got to, I have to put on my uncertainty glasses to do this. In order to do this, I've got to put on my uncertainty glasses and so that I can read from these other versions and translations credibly and with integrity. Because to, is today, is today, when is uh, tomorrow's St. Patrick's Day? Okay, so some of these translations started drinking early. The, the ESV, <laughs> the ESV says, watch, look what, I, put, I think I put this on your handout. The ESV says, have not I written to you 30 sayings to make you know what's right and true? The NIV says, so if you're NIV positive, it says, have, have, I not, have I not written 30 sayings for you, teaching you to be honest? The New Living Translation said, now I don't know, you know, there used to be a Living Translation. I guess it died because we got a New Living Translation now. <laughs> I have written 30 sayings for you filled with advice. But now my favorite one is what I call the HBV, the Humphrey Bogart translation. As the Humphrey Bogart translation says, I'm giving you 30 sterling principles. Believe me, kid, these are truths at work. <laughs> That's the message translation, but you know, it always sounds to me like a, it's, I don't know, it's not really a translation, it's more a paraphrase, but always sounds to me like something that somebody put together with, with their pipe in their mouth, sucking on it, uh, and whatever. So, so if, you, if, if you don't pull your head out of the ostrich hole, you don't know if you've got 30 sayings, or if you've got excellent things. You don't know whether God is teaching you to be honest, honest or giving you certainty regarding the words of truth. And when you investigate, why do they translate it that way? Has, to, has more to do with an Egyptian pharaoh than it even does with the manuscripts. Since dispensationalism is really a hermeneutic, it's a, a method of interpreting the Bible. It is how to study your Bible. It's, so it's more of how to study your Bible than it's really a theology. Let me take N.T. Wright again as an example of contemporary uh, evangelical, including Reformed theological assumptions about the Bible. And I choose him because uh, I will say that Tom Wright speaks for the silent M masses. And if you don't know what I mean by silent M masses, you better ask somebody. Turn to Psalm 77. Speaking for the... Mm, asses, um, Tom Wright says in his book, The Last Word, he titles, he titles this particular book, The Last Word. How's that, how's that a, you know, a title for hipster irony? He says in his book, The Last Word, that only God is the authority, not the Word of God. Well, we know the Word of God's not the authority. Only God is the authority. And yet... The authority of God is mediated through his word. So here we are, the brilliant Dr. Wright, who has a Ph.D. from Cambridge. Now, when you get a Ph.D. from Cambridge, that, that ain't like a uh, Ph.D. from some other places, okay? If you got your Ph.D. from Cambridge, not only do you know Greek and Hebrew, you know Latin, 
and you've studied patristics, which means the early church fathers, and yet, even though he's got his PhD from Cambridge, he cannot speculate or specify exactly how the authority of God is mediated through Scripture. Now, here's the problem with that. Psalm 77. Did I say turn Psalm 77? Look at verse 6, because here's the problem with that. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. This is the companion verse to 2 Timothy 2.15. My spirit made diligent search. So here's our first point for study. In the issue of Bible versions, the trade-off's always between readability and accuracy. Um, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. If all you want to do is read, read anything. And it won't matter so much that they shortened it and they took out references to the blood or the deity of Christ. Well, it does matter a lot, but it won't matter so much to you because all you're doing is reading. But at the point at which you want to search with your spirit, do diligent search and study and rightly divide, you have to have accuracy. So if you do not have plenary verbal accuracy, you don't have anything to study. If you don't have anything to study, you cannot rightly divide. And you cannot rightly divide because you have nothing that's written right. If it's not written right, you can't rightly divide it. So here's our second point for study. If you don't have verbal accuracy, you cannot rightly divide because you have nothing that is written right. And if you have nothing written right and therefore you cannot divide it accurately, you totally miss dispensational theology. So it's no wonder why. We're in the Laodicean age. There's some things that make this Laodicean age. The issue of Bible versions is, is, is one of them. Because if you don't have the right Bible, you miss dispensational theology. Therefore, the conflict for souls of lost men and women is lost through sour as opposed to sound theology. Why? Because the um, asses have, have moved the goalposts on us. They move the goalposts on biblical authority. And as soon as you pull up the goalposts from the King James Bible, then you have to say, well, authority is not found in any translation. And it's not found in any particular manuscript. Really, it's not found in any set of manuscripts, nor in any original language text in actuality. I mean, I know a lot of people. I know some pastors. I know some, I know some pastors who preach from the New King James. But I don't know of anybody who is NKJVO. I know some people who, who say that the best translation is the ESV. I don't know of anybody who's ESVO. I know some people who like the idea of the majority text, but I don't know of anybody who's MTO. Now, they might have drove a GTO, but, they, but they're not MTO because the majority text is still as much a work in progress as either the eclectic text or the, quote, reasoned eclecticism of the ESV. Dr. Maurice Robinson was uh, the advisor for my master's degree at Luther Rice Seminary. He went on to be research professor of New Testament studies at Southwest, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, I, and he put together what, it, what is called the Byzantine text, Byzantine, modern Byzantine text type. And I know he would not claim inerrancy for his Byzantine text. We play so loosely with the Bible in American Christianity, we've made it nearly impossible to know. No, we've made it impossible to know the certainty of the words of truth. 
And yet the evidence and the alternatives prove that we have the very words of God in the English language. How do I know? Let me boil it down because this is a topic for another class uh, and or another conference. But, uh, but, but, but c- come here and let me learn you something. But only briefly. Bible came into English in manuscript format in 1385, the Wycliffe Bible. Then the printing press was invented. And over the next 150 years, there were six, you might say, the way I usually phrase it, there were six printed revisions. The seventh was the King James Bible, 1611, and then it stopped. It stopped. I mean, that's not my fault. It stopped. It stopped after the seventh revision because the Holy Spirit was satisfied. And for 270 years, from 1611 to 1881, it was the only Bible we had in English. So either the authorized version is Scripture, meaning it's God's words in English, or we've never had them and we never will because there's a lot less certainty about both the Greek and the Hebrew text today than there was in 1611. So, so money, you know money and return on investment is a factor in every modern version. So what had happened was the, the, the masses say biblical authority equals inspired originals only. So anyone who is not KJVO is automatically OMO if, if they believe in inerrancy, original manuscripts only. So evangelical and Reformed theologians only believe in biblical preservation in some place versus in a place. So they're kind of like N.T. Wright on on the idea of biblical authority. Well, you know, God mediates his authority through the word, but I can't tell you how or where. Well, biblical preservation exists, but I can't tell you how or where. But hold it, if you can't tell me how or where then the matter of inerrancy is a moot point. Because if you do not have verbally preserved Scripture, then to have an inerrant, originally inspired Scripture is pointless. It doesn't matter if the original was inerrant or not, if if the inerrant word is not printable. So whatever it is they believe about the doctrine of preservation, it's led them to capitulate on actually having inerrant scripture. It's not in a, biblical authority is not in a translation, it's not in a manuscript, it's not in a set of manuscripts, it's not in any one of the original language texts that we have today, majority or Byzantine or or TR or whatever. The, The masses say inerrancy equals OMO, original Manuscript only. Now, that's not anything I'd be proud about because then, if I talk about how much I love my Bible in in the ultimate hipster irony, I have no inerrant Bible. I have no Bible with biblical authority. I mean, what hypocrisy. Here's the the ironic hypocrisy. Nicholas Thomas Wright accepts and, and ably defends the deity of Christ the historicity of Christ, he was a historical person, and even his deity, even though Christ came through a sinful virgin. So N.T. Wright would champion the, what we call the impeccability, the sinlessness of Christ, even though Christ resided in human flesh. And yet what he believes and even defends for the incarnate word 
He will not allow for the inscripturated word. Now, there's an, yeah, okay, let me, let me give away his game. The reason he accepts it for the incarnated word, but won't accept it for the inscripturated word, because the inscripturated word is still here. The incarnate word is gone. But if he accepts that idea for the inscripturated word, he now has a book that is going to judge him. But I can see you're not getting this, so let me illustrate that irrefutable idea. Turn to Psalm 12. Psalm 12. There was a little girl who went to her first graduation in Sunday school, and, and it was her first promotion Sunday in this church. And the church gave a reception, you know, for her little class. And, and at that reception, they gave all the kids this little gift Bible, you know, one of those children's New Testaments. And after she got her gift Bible, one of the adults comes up to her and says, congratulations, I'm so proud of you. She said, thank you very much. He said, is that the Bible they gave you? She said, yes, it is. He said, may I see your Bible? She said, yes, you may see it, but you cannot open it. He said, why can I not open it? She said, because if you open it, then God's going to get out. <laughs> now, this is amazing to me because in a very real sense, if you'll open your King James Bible, God will get out. Yeah. And, and, and God and the Word of God are equated in over 50 particulars. And, and yet what the... Masses defend with one hand, they take away with, you know, the fact that the word was made flesh, the word became flesh, and yet was sinless. They tear down with the other hand regarding biblical authority. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7 say, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And then they argue to, to the end of the day over whether that, those pronouns actually refer to the Word of God or not. Why? You have 411 other places that, 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 that the concept of biblical preservation is, is intentionally affirmed. So why purposely deny it in this verse? Turn to, turn to Psalm 119. I think Jesus should be the final arbiter, and Jesus says his word shall not pass away. Matthew 24, 35, Mark 13, 31. But Psalm 119, verse 161, here's all I know. I have to be able to have the same attitude toward the Bible I hold in my lap, have in my hand, or um, is uh, digitally on my, on my device. Um, I have to have the same attitude toward it. I believe that the that the people in Scripture did, that David did. Look at Psalm 119, verse 161. So near the end of the psalm, verse 161, David says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. So, so, so Jesus' view of Scripture and mine are the same. I cannot in good conscience teach a new generation of young men and young women a view that is inconsistent and incompatible with the Bible itself, and one which leaves you without having an authoritative Bible. After all, the masses can't give me BCV, book, chapter, and verse, on the OMO view that they teach, original manuscript only. So in that respect, they do the same thing that cult groups do. They rely on uninspired logic to overthrow inspired truth. Oh, how the Greeks seek after wisdom. They still 
Seek after wisdom. Turn to Acts 17. Original manuscript only worship is a man-made doctrine. Whereas Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21, Psalm 119, verse 161 are not man-made doctrines. The masses cannot point to a Bible character in over 1,600 years. That's, that was the writing time from the book of Job to the book of Revelation. They cannot point to one Bible character who took the view of Scripture or biblical authority that they espouse outside of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. So where did David or Paul or Daniel or the Gentiles who trusted Paul's translation of the Hebrew into Greek, where did they believe biblical authority rested? The masses are left with no way to actually make their personal, private, i.e. man-made doctrine of inerrancy and preservation and biblical authority jive. They have no way to make it jive with what the scriptures actually teach themselves about, about biblical authority and how Bible characters, including Jesus, actually viewed their, their scripture. So let me open a window on that word. In 1963, in Birmingham, Alabama, there was a man by the name of Bull Connor. As a matter of fact, I just noticed, came up on my timeline somewhere in, I don't know, Google News or something like that. You know, they were doing uh, the anniversary of this. And so, okay, March 15th was the anniversary of um, President Johnson getting on television and uh, talking about how we needed voting rights. And this happened just a few days after uh, Bloody Sunday at the uh, uh, Pettus Bridge in uh, Selma. So, so there was a man named Bull, Bull Connor, and Bull Connor was the police commissioner, and as the commissioner of police, he ordered police dogs and fire hoses to be turned on peaceful marchers and on innocent children. And that was a big controversy at the time. Dr. King didn't necessarily want the kids out there marching with them, and the kids were like, no, you can't leave us out of this. And, and what you may not know is this, that the same Bull Connor was a Sunday school teacher in his church. And he taught the Bible to his class on Sunday, and he taught it in such a way as to justify his personal, political, prejudiced position on Sunday, and then turn the German shepherds loose on Monday. So, so he was a Sunday school teacher, but he was a member of the Klan, and you and I both know that the Klan and the Nation of Islam use the Bible to bolster their belief in racial superiority. Sometimes when I reflect on that, it's hard for me to believe that we're reading the same Bible. And yet we are. It's the same words, but they read it in a slanted way. So long ago, I learned what William Shakespeare said in Act 1, Scene 3, A Merchant of Venice, the devil can quote scripture for his purpose. So now I know, and this is our third point for study, no matter who the devil is, if he's purposed to do something, he can find a scripture, twist a scripture, or invent a scripture for what he wants to do. Acts chapter 17, I say turn to Acts 17. Acts 17 verse 10, And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What made them more noble? They received the word with all readiness of mind. They, were, they put their thinking caps on. They didn't sit back and say, oh, this is too much, I can't get this. You know, all this stuff he's saying about Messiah. He goes to this verse and that verse and this, this play, and he's pulling out this scroll and that scroll. 
And it's hard to follow along when you're unrolling your scroll all the time to go from one side to another. And, and you know, and said, no, they, were, they had readiness. Of, they received it with readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether, whether those things were so. Turn to your neighbor and say, be biblical. You won't be safe unless you be biblical. You won't be right unless you be biblical. You won't be reaching others. You won't be helping others unless you be biblical. Your home won't run right unless you be biblical. And that's why if we don't start off with the same assumptions, we, can't look, we can look at the exact same evidence and come to different conclusions, as do the scientists regarding creation versus evolution. So you need to determine that you're going to be well-read, well-led, and well-fed in the Bible because you either view the evidence skeptically or believingly. So let me sew up our introductory explanation of assumptions with this fourth point for study. The masses, to their credit, many of them, preach the Bible authoritatively, but to their demerit, they do not preach an authoritative Bible. Hello, somebody. Now, let me take you back to 2 Timothy chapter 2 again. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the masses boast in an errant Bible. Or, or, or is it love for an inerrant Bible that can't be printed? I'm not sure which. But, but the only way to preach the Bible authoritatively with integrity is to teach an authoritative Bible. Otherwise, if you believe that you do not have and you cannot find an authoritative Bible, you're a hypocrite to preach it authoritatively. And that's a psychological disorder called dissociation. Now let that sink in because that is the bottom line of the only alternative position. The, on, the bottom line of, the, of every alternative to the King James Bible is this. Everything available has errors in it somewhere. That is their bottom line. Everything available has errors in it somewhere. Now, my God is bigger than that because he embraces our imperfection. He embraces our imperfection. He did that in overshadowing sinful Mary in order to conceive sinless Christ. He didn't have any problem embracing our imperfection to do that. When the Bible was inspired originally, he had no problem embracing the imperfection of the prophet in order to give the word of God out of his mouth. So he embraces our imperfection. I believe that is shown by the triangulation of Bible principles, historical evidence, and the alternatives themselves. So let me, let me move into talking about the sounds of sound theology, because here's the dealio. Your spirit has to be able to make diligent search of something and what it searches has to have enough verbal accuracy that you can do this with it. Did I say turn to 2 Timothy 2? Start in verse 14. Not verse 15. Start in verse 14. Of these things put them into remembrance, Timothy, charging them before the Lord. Boy, this is strong words. That they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers, how are, you going to, how are you going to keep that charge? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. 
Okay, I don't see why you're not getting this. This is not Paul's first time in prison. This is the first time he's not going to get out. And he knows it. So the thematic thread woven through 2 Timothy is, Paul is telling Timothy, stay faithfully in the word so you can stay faithful to the word. He says, if you guys keep fighting over unprofitable words, unuseful words, unedifying words, words that do not serve to preach Christ and him crucified, therefore insignificant words, you're going to subvert your hearers. And, it's, and it's, the, it's the Greek word catastrophe. The James gang translated it to overthrow. They, you will overthrow the faith of your hearers. They will be demolished and destroyed. Now to keep that from happening, he says, you've got to be able to make diligent search with your spirit in something that's worth studying. And worthy study involves rightly dividing. And if you do not make right divisions, you end up with a bunch of babbling, a bunch of fruitless, empty arguments that only result in advance in and progression toward ungodliness. You do know that the English word godliness is just a contraction of three words, uh, uh, godlikeness. And the K and E are squeezed out over time. Ungodlikeness, it, it, it produces ungodlikeness. It leads to an increase in ungodlikeness. And that, my brethren, is the definition of our day. Because how you see the word shapes what you get out of the word. Hello, somebody. How'd you miss that all these years? Okay, watch. Five ways that you can address the word. And since this is an LFBI class on contemporary dispensationalism or dispensationalism and contemporary theology, I'm going to give you these five ways to address the word. I know it sounds like a golf game. You know, you've got to address the ball right or the ball's not going to go in the, in the right direction. But first, you can approach the Bible. It's number one, superstitious. Let the whole church say superstitious. superstitious. I, I, this is the quid pro quo model. And the quid, quid pro quo is a Latin phrase that means this for that. It means you approach the Bible with the idea of doing something in order to get something in return. Now, that's the typical imperial church model. You superstitiously say the Bible is a magic talisman that ensures that good people always prosper, evil people always suffer. Now, all I'm trying to say is you need to get God out of your Bible. And getting you some God out of your Bible is all about relationship. It's not based on you getting something that he owes you because of how many verses you read or how many verses you memorize. So second, on the other hand, you may approach the Bible. This is number two, skeptical. Let the whole church say skeptical. This is what the academics and the scholars call historical critical model. Now, Dr. Bartlett talked yesterday about the grammatical historical model, and that is uh, uh, you can be grammatical historical and be faith-based because you do need to know grammar. You need to know English grammar as far as that goes. You, you do need to know history. My, my whole argument for the King James Bible is partly based on the evidence and the alternatives in history. You need to know that, but this is what I would call historical critical. And sometimes they have other adjectives in there. Socio-rhetorical. So if you address the Bible in a postmodern way, 
um, saying that scientific investigation has deconstructed its mythology. And then you, then you watch Discovery Channel and National Geographic wants to tell you that Jesus was buried in Talpiot near Jerusalem. That messes you over. So now when you approach the Gospels, you don't read them as history. And as his story, you see them suspiciously. So, so there's, there's and, and, I, and, and again, there's a value to history. Problem with historical critical method is there is no scientific study where you can think you're Marty McFly and you can take Doc Brown's DeLorean back in time and discover all the lexical, cultural, and historical nuances of the original. Hello, somebody. You can't do that. If your goal, if the highest goal of interpretation is to, to get the same understanding as the original hearers, you can never even reach that. No, when I open up my word, I want to enjoy the presence of Almighty God. What I want is my spirit to do diligent search with His Spirit through the Scriptures so that, so that what I hear is God speaking to me. It is the Spirit sculpting me. It is, it is letting the Word of God do the work. Not letting my research in these other areas do the work. Letting my research in the Word of God do the work. And God may not give me another thing, but if God's Spirit can speak to my spirit as I'm reading His Word, then I'm feeding on my reading. But you have to be careful you don't go to seed on, 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 on that, even on what you see, because third, third, you may approach the Bible existential. Let the whole church say existential. existential. This is really an individualist model because I'm only getting into the Word for myself. I'm not, I'm not caring what was said by Philadelphian age Bible students or Bible scholars. I'm not caring what the Puritans wrote or what Spurgeon preached or how some other preacher preserved his sermons in a commentary and how I should be able to stand on his shoulders and look out further. I, no, I don't care about that. It's me and my journal. And all I care about is what I'm writing down to myself. So my Bible becomes an isolationist revelation and Spiritually, it's always seen in the singular, so it's about me getting my needs met. It's not about me getting something to serve others with, and, and we've got to talk about this, because this is our fifth point for study. Unless you look at the Bible right, you will not be right with the Bible. And if you're not right with the Bible, you're not going to be right in the way you look at the world. So your study needs to order your steps into works of servanthood. That is why a living faith fellowship is going to participate together in evangelism, education, missions, pastoral leadership training. But fourth, fourth, you may view the Bible as a slot machine. That's a Reformed and Covenant theology. God's, God's at work in history only fulfilling a limited covenant to humanity and one that's not really mentioned as a covenant anywhere in Scripture. So when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden initially, it was a covenant of works. Oh yeah, BCV. Can you give me book, chapter, verse on that? When they came out of the garden after the fall, it was a covenant of grace. Huh, BCV. And because they do not recognize dispensational distinctions, what they do is they pull the lever, they watch the spinning wheels, but they have no way to define exactly what they should be expecting to get. So now they say the church has replaced Israel. Well, but what does that mean? Does that mean we have rights to the land of Palestine? 
well, let's raise up a crusade and kick, kick them both out of there and, and, and just take over. Oh, no, we can't take that literal. We can only make that allegorical. Well, well what to what? I mean, I'm pulling, I want to get something out of this slot machine sometime. I mean, I can't, can't come up nothing time after time. So let me hit you with this definition. Allegorical means the Bible's not true what it, to what it says. So we got to play the slots with the Bible to ascertain what should be taken literal versus what is a metaphor. And you and I both know that there can be figurative language, even in literal messages. But Bible readers readily recognize when God speaks to Noah and says, I ain't going to destroy the world by water no more. It's going to be a fire next time. That is a change in dispensation. When God says to Moses, make a tabernacle, live by these laws, clean versus unclean, that is a change in dispensation. When Jesus comes and dies and, and the temple is destroyed and all those laws can't be kept anymore, that is a change of a dispensation. So in the final analysis, that brings us to the only correct way for you to address the Bible. This is number five, rightly divided, the dispensational model. Okay, I can see you need to stand and stretch while I open a window on this word. So, because this is the most important part. So as soon as you get that note written down in your notes, just stand, stretch, don't say anything, just stretch. As I tell you the story, this story was in Reader's Digest, so I know it was true. A, a boy who graduated, he graduated from college. He told his father, when I graduate, all I want is a car. Graduation day came and his father gave him a Bible. And that brother was upset because that's not what he wanted. So he had a fight with his father right at graduation. And his father died just a few days later. And he's very hurt because they parted on bad terms. Because he was being a spoiled brat. And he was mad and upset because he didn't get a car for his graduation. So he goes back to the house and he starts going through stuff. He's going through the stuff and he comes across the Bible that his father tried to give him for graduation. And he starts getting sad and tears start streaming down his face and... He opens up that Bible and out falls an envelope. And the envelope that falls out has his name on it. And so he opens the envelope with his name on it, and inside that envelope was a key to a brand new car. Everything he wanted, the solution to all he was upset about, was found right in the Word. The key was in the Word. Okay, I don't see why you're not getting this, so go ahead and sit down. Because at the change of every dispensation, God intervenes in history and is active. But this is the dispensation of grace. That means we can't have a quid pro quo like they did under the law. Where if you kept the commandment, you always got the blessing. Blessing is now based on grace activated by faith in the finished work of Christ. So that means God now operates providentially, not existentially. Okay, here's our sixth point for study. God's not about giving you blessings for you. That's existential. God is only about giving you the blessings that will change you and equip you providentially for his plan. And only if you rightly divide that thing can you still take literally every promise in the Bible because then you know, while all the Bible is written for you, in three applications that we talked about yesterday, historical, doctrinal, inspirational, it's not all written to you. And since it's not all written to you, you have to be careful about what you apply from somebody else's email. 
Shyamalan or Rhonda should have bought a Honda. I mean, I don't believe speaking in tongues is for today, but if I did, I'd do it right there. <laughs> so one of us is going to shout today before we leave. I'm just saying. You can take God at his word without skeptical suspicion if you just rightly divide it. So I remind you that in the dispensational idea, there is a scarlet thread of redemption that runs through Scripture. And this, is, this comprises what I will call the pure gospel. It, it's the dispensational idea. First, letter A, all Scripture has to be related back to the person and work of Christ. Second, letter B, the best way to understand the Bible is by allowing it to interpret itself, cross-referencing. Comparing Scripture with Scripture because then you have the context. That's why dispensationalism is really an approach to the Bible. It's not a theological system. It ensures you never take a text out of context to make it a pretext for your opinion. So here's our seventh point for study. Never allow somebody to get you in a Bible discussion where they take the text out of context because taking a text out of context is a pretext for you being conned. I'm just saying. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just saying. Now go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Don't get sick of 2 Timothy 2 yet. We're not done with it. Because dispensationalism is the only way approaching the Bible that allows the Bible to open itself. It is an, an outlook on the Bible that takes those 66 books as the one mind of God for man today. And, and it's an address to the Bible that allows you to hit the ball straight and allow Scripture to be consistent with itself. So in the context of 2 Timothy, Paul is condemning all those false teachers who are playing games with the words and the word. He says and he tells them, here's my dispensational presupp presuppositional lens. Here's how I approach Scripture to interpret it. Watch, verse, verse 8, verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So if you want to put it in a nutshell, what the Bible is all about related back to Jesus. But as you do that, you better recognize, Paul says, that in the books I've written to the churches, we have a gospel of grace that goes out to the world. It's not a gospel of law because that came by Moses. The truth is Jesus Christ runs all through the Bible because his lineage goes all the way back to David. And God gave David the sure mercies of David, and that wasn't based on law, that was based on grace. So all the Bible is for us because Jesus runs all through the Bible in type and shadow, but it's not all written to us. Uh, 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 but what we have is a gospel of grace, and the proof of the truth of that gospel is that Jesus was raised. So dispensationalism is the only approach that says you can walk through the word, word for word. You can walk through the word, Word for word. You can't do that if, so, if, if you have to take literal passages metaphorically. You can't do that if you have to take literal things allegorically. Only if you're dispensationalist can you walk through the word, word for word. First, remember. Because as people of faith, we're people of memory. That means you do not disconnect where you are right now from where God brought you to get you where you are right now. That's why the Bible says in this dispensation we have two ordinances for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Because as believers, we have to look back and connect our now new birth with his then death. 
We've got to connect our now, new birth, with his then death, so that we can connect our now ongoing life with his then suffering and resurrection. How'd you miss that all these years? Baptists are the only denomination that ought to be able to stay in a continuous state of revival because we're the only ones with a correct view of the ordinances. And that's what a correct view and application of the ordinances will do for you. Baptism ensures nobody gets in this church that's not born again, that has not believed the same gospel you and I have believed. And the Lord's Supper ensures, however often you take it, that you can't go more than that period of time with bitterness in your heart, sin in your life, something unconfessed, something against some other brother or sister. We ought to be in a state of continuous revival. Because true spirituality is based on identification truths. You've got to get people to connect where they are right now with what happened back then. And we as Baptists have that unique ability because of a dispensational understanding to use these ordinances to take us forward to the past. The Lord's Supper takes us forward to the past and inserts us right in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. So remember... What do you remember? Second, remember Jesus Christ because Jehovah saves through the Messiah. The infinite God voluntarily limited himself to human frame and flesh. You mean you didn't know that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is all about? Jehovah saves through the Messiah because Jesus is God with skin on. In essence, God said, I'm going to reach and retrieve. I'm going to lean and then lift. I'm going on a search and save mission. This is, this is a recovery operation. This is not a recovery operation of, of dead things. This is search and rescue because I came to seek and to save those who are lost. So I'm going to stoop and then I'm going to scoop. So when I see the name Jesus Christ, it means God came down for me on the cross. But wait, hold it, because that's not all. Operators are standing by. And if you call, just call in the next five minutes. It means God came down for you on that cross. Now what are you going to do with what he did? you got to do something with what he did. Because if you ignore it, God judges you as rejecting it. No, let me put it this way. You can, because God will let you. You can work your own way to heaven. You can pay for your own infinite sins against the infinite holiness of God and work that all off. But you have to do it in hell. And since it's infinite sins against infinite holiness, it just takes eternity to work it off. That's, that's all I'm saying. So, so you can either try and you can work your way to God. He'll allow you to do that. Though you'll never get there, he'll allow you to do that. Or God has worked his way to you, paying for your sins in Jesus because he's the only, only the perfection of a divine being could pay for sin against infinite holiness. So dispensationalists look at the Bible, they rightly separate it so that they can rightly unite it around Jesus Christ because he is Jehovah anointed, Jesus Christ. God did not anoint you to save you. Because you can't do that. So remember Jesus Christ was third of the seed of David. Because his was the only administration that conquered all principalities and powers. The one administration that got Israel totally free from foreign oppression, that was David. 
He never had anything but victory over his foes. So if I'm a dispensationalist, I'm now looking for David's son to come get me out of the oppressive mess I find myself in. I am remembering David's son because he's the anointed one to make me an overcomer. So in case any of the Jews are a little confused, Paul says, we have proof. He's from the line of David, the root of Jesse. He's descended directly and, and, and is the expected one to, to defeat all principalities and powers. The one that we need to come has come, but check this. Because if you're a dispensationalist and rightly dividing your Bible, you know he is coming again. Because fourth, fourth, he was raised from the dead. And whatever you're in right now, Ain't worse than what he came back from. He came back from death. Okay, you missed that. Let me be kind and rewind. Who killed Jesus? The Romans. Where's Paul in prison? Rome. Romans killed him. God raised him. Paul is in the very clutches of those who took Jesus' life from him. But Paul says, the reason I'm not tripping right now is because of what I remember. I know they have an executioner waiting on me. But Timothy, you don't understand. I serve the one that they already tried this death thing on. They already executed the one that I serve. And since I know what God did with him, I don't have to be worried about what God's going to do with me. I serve a savior who was executed by the same Roman system. But wait, that's not all because operators are standing by. And if you just call in the next five minutes... It means you're a dispensationalist and you view the Bible and history and, and the church dispensationally, then you understand the same conditions that existed in the first century are in existence today. Now, this, may, this is going to be all I have time to get to regarding prophecy, but there are three kinds of empires in history. Empires of conquest, empires of commerce, and a third one that's only existed twice. There have been many empires of conquest. Babylon, Assyria, USSR. There have been multiple empires of commerce. The Greeks, the British. There have only been two empires of trust. Rome, on the Tiber, and Washington, D.C., on the Potomac. So a dispensationalist knows exactly where we're at in Bible prophecy, and therefore where America is at in history. The Roman Republic did not conquer the Greeks and the Carthaginians to rule over them. They went in to cause regime change in order to create allies. They wanted an ally in control so they could expand their security horizons. That's exactly what you find when the Gospels open. Here's Herod, king of the Jews. Why? Because the Romans said so. Because they wanted an ally in control in that part of the, part of the planet. Now, now, I don't think you understand yet how a dispensational view of the Bible defines history for you. Because after World War I, every boot came back. Every single boot came back. But when we had to go back in there, only 25 years later to, to clean that place out, we now have over 662 military bases in 38 foreign countries. Now, Ron Paul says we have 900 military bases. He's a senator, I don't know. We have U.S. military personnel. We have boots on the ground in 148 foreign outposts. 
That's exactly what the Romans did, establish an outpost. You could knock it over real easy, but if you did, you called down the wrath of a Roman legion on your head. But wait, there's more. And if, and if operators are on, on standby right now, and if you'll call in the next five minutes, you'll be able to see how fresh and relevant dispensationalism is versus dead duck covenant and reformed theology. Because this has just happened in the last five decades. Since 1967, we have become the new Romans. And not just abroad, but at home. We now have in our society the exact same marriage arrangements as they did in first century Rome. I mean, our U.S. of A. Supreme Court legalized not only abortion, so you do thumbs up or thumbs down on the baby, but also gay marriage. The whole idea of transgender. So it doesn't matter what, what sex you were born as, you have the right to choose to self-identify your gender because that's your authentic self. But wait, there's more, because when every boot came back from Europe, we, when, it, when the boots came back, we brought booty with us. We brought booty with our boots, and Great Britain did not finish paying off their war debt to us till 1996. Uh, we, we took all the, there's no Nazi gold over there, we took it all. We, we took what had been confiscated from Europe's Jews, and at Bretton Woods in 1944, we wrote the rules, we invented the accords that would set up the IMF to establish the dollar as the one world currency. The euro will never amount to anything because there's no IMF of the euro. But wait, there's more. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he came at the end of, he came at the end of the rule of a man who ended the Roman Republic and was the first emperor, but nobody knew that. Nobody knew that. He certainly did not say that. He told the Senate and people of Rome that he was reestablishing the Republic. After the death of his adoptive father, Julius Caesar, he was going to reestablish the Republic, and the title Imperator simply meant that he had control of the armies. But when we look back now, it is obvious to everybody, empire started with him. And only a dispensationalist knows that when the world has come full circle in 20 centuries' time, that the second coming of Christ is going to be when a man is given power and co-ops our empire of trust, utilizing our one-world currency system to set himself up, although he won't call himself this, as a new emperor. Uh, because what that simply means is this, 2 Timothy 2, look at verse uh, 8 again, my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Paul states, I'm in prison, I'm chained this time, and I ain't going to get out. But God's word is not chained, God's word is still free. We are, by that time, he is four decades and five emperors in, but the word of God is still free. He says, since I have the word, I may look like I'm chained, but I'm really not bound because there's a part of him that's in me. And that can't be chained because I have a word rightly divided. And so it doesn't matter where America is in Bible prophecy. It doesn't matter that we're the new Romans. Since God's word cannot be chained to that, I'm not chained to that. 
But before we quit, I want to get jiggy with it. and uh, Let me give you a plan for growing as a student of the Bible. Uh, turn back to Psalm 119. Many of you know this, but I want to share this quickly because it may be helpful uh, to some of you as you... Uh, uh, go back to normal routine, at least as normal as it can be till the next conference, and uh, maybe it'll help us reignite a spiritual fire of the revival that comes from a Bible rightly divided. So I want to give you in specific how to feed off what you read, how to get more God out of your Bible, how to be well-read and fed so you can go beyond mediocrity, you can defeat the enemy of average in these last days before Jesus returns. We know that you, we need to be ready because everything's in place. So, but here's the dealio. Everything is in place, but are you, are you in place? That's the question from the pulpit today. Are you in place yet? Do you understand yet that you can be a Philadelphian Christian and a Philadelphian church even in a Laodicean age? So if you want to hear this, just say, light it up, Alan. Okay, I'll even take silence as consent, since I know you don't want to throw shade on, on this conference. So first, number one, prepare spiritually. Psalm 119, verse 15. Verse 15 says, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Now watch, verses 15 and 16. Those four steps in sequence are always going to apply. You can mark it down right there in that verse. First, meditate on what God says. But second, do that in conjunction with contemplating how God acts. Then third, rejoice in what God tells you, because if you do that, then finally it will lead to remembrance at the time you need obedience. So if you want to know how God acts, you can look at the Word, because reading God's Word is an encounter with God. And you cannot be obedient at the time you need it unless you remember to rejoice because rejoicing in His Word will change your behavior. It'll unleash the Holy Spirit to change your, your spirit. I just gave you the answer. You can counsel. You can cancel your counseling session this week. Now, don't stop taking your medications. I didn't say you'd stop taking your meds. But you don't need to go to your therapy session. Second, number two, work systematically because our happiness and your usefulness is related to your, make, your spirit making diligent search in a fashion that rightly divides the scriptures. And we grieve God continually by not being in our Bibles and not being organized in our study. Dispensationalists know there's an organization to the Bible. Pastor Trotter gave you part of that on the first night and we've given you a couple of charts. Uh, but third, third, working systematically means three things. First, letter A, scan the plan, but be passage-oriented. Overview the survey of the whole Bible. See it in light of its dispensations, but then when it comes time to study, go beyond a general survey and pick out a paragraph or a passage you can focus on. So zero in on a section to study, then next, letter B, think biographically. Sometimes you have to look at it for the narrative because all the Bible is about people, plots, things, and places. That's all there is to the Bible. Those four things, that's all. People, plots, things, and places. So the words are the key to the Bible, but you've got to think biographically in order to add, know the, the right questions to ask to get to the key words. So then if you want to be systematic about it, in the final analysis letter C, become a concordance user. 
So can I tell you what you need to have in your toolbox? You need to buy yourself a concordance. A concordance is an index to the words of the Bible. So you can take any word from anywhere in the Bible, you can look up that word in a concordance, and you can find every other place that word is used in Scripture. Now the reason that's important is because while there were about 40 human authors to Scripture, there's only one divine mind behind it. And since the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of the Bible, it is a unified book with uniform intentions. So use a concordance to get the Bible to interpret itself. Number three, utilize King James Bible center column references. Because while a concordance is based on the appearance of exact words, center column references direct you to passages that might not use the same words, or the same word you're looking at, but has some bearing on the verse that you're looking at. So another tool to put in your toolbox, along with your concordance, buy you a copy of the book, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. Because the treasury of scripture knowledge gives you almost 600,000 cross-references. That's an average of 19 cross-references per verse for every verse in the Bible. Cross-references take you to related concepts or events or individuals. Number four, trace the types through the Bible. Because types allow you to find the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why? Because every New Testament doctrine is illustrated by an Old Testament example. And that's all a Bible type is. So types take you from prophecy to fulfillment, from shadows to substance, from how Christ is pictured in the Old Testament to the reality of who he is to us and the reality of what he's going to do in the future. Then in the final analysis, since the words are really the key to the Bible, it's number five, do word studies on specific terms. Take a word like grace, grab your concordance, begin to run the references. If you get crudens, you'll have a phrase concordance. You'll be able to study phrases, not just terms. If you get youngs, you'll have an analytical concordance. You'll be able to break it down by Hebrew and Greek word. If you get strongs, you'll have a dictionary of Hebrew and Greek words in the back, and then you've got another advantage because you get to see every other way that the James gang translated any specific term. So let me wrap up my section of this conference with my slant on the straight cut. One of the basic laws of Bible interpretation is the law of first mention. And the law of first mention simply means the first time that God uses a word or a term or a concept in the Bible will nearly always define that term or concept for you, at least, or at least govern the way that it's used throughout the rest of Scripture. This law is valid because the entire Bible was written by the same mind. There are many mouths speaking in the Bible, but only really one speaker. So turn to Luke chapter 16. Say I wanted to find the term dispensation. This is what threw me at the first, because when somebody first showed me a Schofield reference Bible with the dispensations, it appeared at first glance on the surface to just be a man-made system, and I couldn't understand it. And then I had to go back and say, okay, let me really examine this, find out what, what, what's the dealio here. So let me go back and look, and once I, once I, 
Once I went to the law of first mention, I was able to find the way to define what we're talking about. So if I want to define the term dispensation, then we, we find that the word dispensation itself is only used a handful of times in Paul's epistles. None of those really give a satisfactory definition. But part of being approved unto God is your spirit making diligent search and you studying like a workman. So if you have a Strong's Concordance and look up the word dispensation, and then take the, take, the, take the number for that word to the Greek dictionary in the back, and you get a basic definition, but after that there's a colon, and then it tells you the other ways that the James gang translated that word in Scripture, you find it's also translated stewardship. And a steward is someone entrusted with the management of another person's affairs. So the first place that word is used is Luke chapter 16. That means Luke chapter 16 is likely going to define for us, I think, this is my opinion, but it's likely going to define for us what a dispensation is and give us the key to rightly dividing your Bible. Watch. Verse 1, Luke 16, verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, a dispenser, an economizer, oikoinomon, and, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, your dispensation, your economy, your oikonomias, for thou mayest no longer be no longer steward. Quartermaster. <clears throat> then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the dispensation. The stewardship I cannot dig, to beg I am ashamed. I'm resolved what to do, that when I am put out of this dispensation, this stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. Everybody knows the most powerful person in the army is not the general. It's not the ca commander of your unit. It's not the captain of your squad. It is the unit supply specialist. Most powerful person in the army is the procurement clerk. It's the quartermaster of the army. And he may only hold the rank of sergeant, but he's the most powerful person on base. That's the person being talked about here. This passage gives us four characteristics, and they define a Bible dispensation. What that means is, every time you see these four characteristics take place, you've got to make a division in your Bible. Things on one side of the division are not going to run like things on the other side of the division because... A different quartermaster's been installed. That's what that is. A dispensation is an economy. An economy is the way the governors of a country distribute the commodities necessary for life. So this is my sidewalk definition. A, di a dispensation is a different way God dispenses eternal life with a dual purpose. Approving man's inability to earn it for himself or be good enough to keep it and of accomplishing his eternal purpose. So this passage gives us four things, and they will show us how to recognize a dispensation. Number one, every dispensation has a leading steward. Let the whole church say steward. This is the manager, dispenser, quartermaster that God calls out. And being called out is an important concept because that's the meaning of the word church. Noah found favor or grace, so he was called to prepare an ark. 
Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Moses was called out at the burning bush. And just like Hebrews 11 says, the response in each case was an expression of their faith. Number two, every steward is given a responsibility. Let the whole church say responsibility. Responsibility. That responsibility is to in some way manage as a householder something that belongs to God. To to manage the goods, as it says in verse 1 of Luke 16. To manage the goods that he is distributing. That means to fulfill his stewardship, the leading steward has to prove he has the heart of God. And he proves he has the heart of God by administering the affairs of God just like God would, savvy? Okay, number three. In every dispensation, there will be a failure on the part of the steward or his physical or spiritual descendants to fulfill that responsibility. Let the whole church say, loser! (laughs) So man is held accountable. Abraham's descendants are put in bondage in Egypt. Moses' descendants are led into captivity by Assyria and Babylon. Finally, number four, in every dispensation, God comes down in judgment and takes away the stewardship. And once you understand those four distinctions from the Word of God, I believe you can easily defy seven dispensations between the two eternities. Some, you know, some, some people include the eternities and they get different numbers of dispensations, but I, I think you can identify between the two eternities in time seven dispensations. And, and Dr. Bartlett gave you those on the, on the first day. So I'm not going to go through those. You've got them. You'll have to. As a matter of fact, I thought about making that the final exam for LFBI students that you'd have to go through and take these four characteristics and identify them for every one of the seven dispensations. I thought about that, and then I thought, okay, I, I don't want people to hate me. So, um, so we made a little bit. We'll, we'll give an online test. It'll be true-false, and it'll be a little bit easier. But, but let me summarize the characteristics this way. God selects the workers, God sets the standards, there is the possibility of failure, and there's judgment at the end. Now, what is the purpose of having dispensations? Why doesn't God just dispense eternal life only once, one way? Why why not do it one way throughout all of human history and let that be it? Why keep changing the rules of engagement? I would say there are at least three purposes to the seven dispensations. First, letter A, to prove how in no conceivable circumstance, none, is man able to either recover or preserve his own righteousness and save himself from the law of indwelling sin. Not not if God walks with you in the garden. Not if uh, he just leaves you alone to let you do your own thing. Not if he institutes human government to try and control some of that. Not if he says, all right, I'm done with you people. I'm Abraham. I'm calling Abraham. That still doesn't work. All right. Moses, here, I'll help you out. Uh, Tabernacle, do it this way. Bring these sacrifices. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. Letter B, to prove humanity's only hope lies in a direct intervention by the Holy Spirit so as to result in a new nature being imparted. In other words, God's image being restored to men and women. Let her see to fulfill the eternal purpose of God, of glorifying himself by gathering together in one all things in Christ. 
through his body, which is the church. Now, I want to take just a moment and end with some concluding admonitions, because this will be our segue into what Dr. Bartlett's going to cover with you in the next session. And I I want to conclude with a caveat, uh, some strong caution based on what we learned from studying the history of dispensationalism and studying dispensationalists. Uh, So here are some reminders and cautions that I would give, and Dr. Bartlett might add to this and, and give you some historical examples. But first, this is number one, we know that prophecy is the hardest theological topic to be certain on because it hasn't happened yet. So don't be dogmatic about details. Dr. Bartlett mentioned yesterday how there were some pastors, okay, there were some pastors who taught the rapture would take place in 1987. Then, the next year, somebody wrote a book called 88 Reasons for the Rapture in 1988. What he did not tell you was that when that did not occur in 1988, they added one more reason and republished it as 89 Reasons for 89. I have commentaries by certain fundamentalists in Florida saying, It would certainly occur by the year 2000. It had to, or else the Bible just was not true. And they all base their approach on a dogmatic uh, 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 addressing of the topic of Bible prophecy. But here's the dealio, number two. Prophetically, God's written his word providentially. God is not a Calvinist. He did not write the Bible Calvinistically. That's why you can't speak quite so dogmatically, except things he's dogmatic about. So unlike blind fate, providence has eyes. That's what Spurgeon said. I love Spurgeon. I didn't know that Pastor Brett had started a Spurgeon society. I want to join it. You know, oh, what's his name had a dead poet society. Who gives a rip about that? I need, we need a Spurgeon society. And stand up on our desk and quote Spurgeon sermons. And it finally clicked for me whenever I read a sermon of Spurgeon's. And he took it from Ezekiel chapter 1, chapter 10. And he showed how God's providence has eyes. That means that um, the way providence works is to, to adjust to your adjustments. God's not blind. It's not blind fate. You have a free will, and God will freely respond to your will. The illustration of this irrefutable idea is how he deals with John the Baptist. Jesus said, had the Jews received him as their Messiah, John would have been the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. John the Baptist would have done for the prophecy of Elijah's coming before the appearance of the Messiah. But you know, since God wrote it, he always gives himself the widest latitude interpretation and application of his own work. And God's providence has eyes, and it saw that the Jews did not receive Jesus. Therefore, the prophet Elijah will actually come, as described in the book of Revelation. Uh, what we're studying at this conference is what, uh, you know, what I would hope to say is normative dispensationalism. It's 
pretty much the clear stuff. It's the necessary stuff to keep us out of doctrinal heresy. But there is such a thing as hyper-dispensationalism. Dr. Bartlett's going to talk about that. And, there, and those people tend to always cause division. So number three, guard against pride because of what you learn and what you think you know. It's very easy to get what we give at a conference like this and what we give in our institute and look down on somebody else because they don't know as much as you. Now, the solution is not for us to dumb down our teaching. The solution is not for us to water down doctrinal truths. The solution is for you to always be on guard against pride. Because here's our final point for study. One way to guard against spiritual pride is to respond with humility that springs from security in your position. If you're dogmatic about every doctrinal detail related to the toenails of the Antichrist, you're way too dogmatic, I'm just saying. And, and that spirit and that attitude is something the devil will use against you, even if you're correct. Number four, guard against going to seed on doctrine and losing your devotional fire. Going to seed is the idea that the fruit is gone. The picture is when the harvest is passed and some of the fruit remained on the stalk or it fell to the ground and all the nourishing part withered away and all that's left is the kernel. And the kernel's okay because you can plant it, but it's not immediately useful to anybody else. You can get so absorbed on prophecy, you go to seed. You overanalyze. So if you're going to go to seed on anything... My beloved, go to seed on the blood of Christ. Go to seed on Christ and Him crucified. Go to seed on the eternal purpose of God. So in the final analysis, number five, whatever you do, do not build a theology based on inferences. Most verses in the Bible state something clearly. And the immediately unclear things can be resolved through a standard concordance search or cross-referencing or through typology or a study of biblical symbols or with a standard Bible dictionary, but there are still yet things in the Word of God that are um, mysteries, uh, and not just the mysteries, because they're pretty clear, but none of us will ever totally understand certain things or unravel them. And if you don't believe that, then you must be God. Because if you can totally understand every single nuance of Scripture, you must be as smart as the one who wrote it. There are things about the incarnation of Christ. As Wesley wrote in a hymn, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. There are things about the atonement and how God could create a crack in the Trinity big enough to fit you in it, and still be God. How does God the Father turn his back on God the Son, and they both remain God? How does Christ become sin for us and still be God? So some people take this clear introductory material on dispensations, and they, they start reasoning from additional inferences and not from clear teaching. And then they build a detailed dogmatic theology that leads into heresy because they did not stop with the clear stuff. They did not leave the hard things with God. 
or at least they became dogmatic about things that are unclear, and they did that because of what they inferred must be true, whereas the verses don't really say what they say they say. But my time is up, and some of you haven't been able to keep up with me this whole time because you've been thinking about Faust and sitting at that chessboard with the devil across it ready to say checkmate. But what we learn from Bible dispensations is no matter the failure of the steward, God always has another move. Go ahead and stand and grab your neighbor by the hand. Despite what you are in, despite what obstacles you face, the king always has the last move. You may be humiliated, you may be incapacitated, you may feel incarcerated or irritated or frustrated, but my king has another move for you. Father, we pray and we trust that as we end this conference, it'll be the beginning. As we end tonight, it'll be the beginning of us following along in the next move. Lord, you've got, a, you've got a next move for everyone in here. I don't know what that next move is. I mean, an eventual move may be pastoring. It may be on the mission field. We don't know. It may be some ministry started up here, some way to participate they haven't done. The Lord knows some, some people, their next move needs to be, they need to start tithing. Hello, somebody. But God, given what you've done and now what we've seen, we give ourselves to you to make, to show us how to make the next move for you. So that the king wins. So that the king wins. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.